Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Young Contemptibles podcast. And today, Jake and I are going to take a closer look at what in 1919 would have been unthinkable. And that is the planned invasion of Great Britain by the Germans in 1940, codenamed Operation Sea Lion. Of course, the operation was thankfully never launched. However, the Germans were well into the planning stage with troops and transport barges being amassed in northern France. Now, Jake, you are a bit of a self-confessed fanatic of Operation Sea Lion. So tell us when and how it all came about. So it all came about with the fall, well, the invasion and then the fall of France. So in so 10th of May 1940, uh, the Germans invade the well, invade France after invading the Low Countries, Belgium and Netherlands, etc. And soon after that, so from 10th of May to the 25th of June was the Battle of France. Soon after that, the British expeditionary force had to be evacuated from Dunkirk and Calais and Boulogne and places and that such. Um, and then following that uh, came this sense of impending doom. Up until the actual invasion of France, um, Britain was very um, unprepared, really, for an invasion in that sense of the word. They were um, very much um, fears and at the time were non-existent, really. There was no thought. There was thought of no need for defenses. There was thought of no need for preparation for any invasion, really, because they thought the fight would be on the continent, and that's where it would need to be. And um, they never thought the Germans would get access to um, Atlantic ports and such of the like. So, post the Battle of France, Britain became very much aware that uh, invasion was very likely. Um, there was an overestimate. Over overestimate of the uh, power that the Germans had in the way of like the Luftwaffe. The Kriegsmarine was very lacking, especially after the um, Norway campaign and Narvik. The Kriegsmarine had lost several ships, reducing its strength, which wasn't great in the first place, to very, very few warships, which was uncomparable to the Royal Navy's power at that time. But in the way of the air, but in the way of the Luftwaffe, um, British high command, etc., thought they were much higher than they actually were. So that's the general lead up and the reasons why um, we get towards the planned invasion of Britain. Yeah. So 
obviously the, the Germans prior to the Battle of France had had quite a bit of combat experience. So obviously they've been involved somewhat in the Spanish Civil War and also obviously the invasion of Poland too. Now, I don't know masses about the Battle of France. I'm obviously interested in the period, but I know that you're a bit of a, a nut on it, so to speak, a bit of a fanatic. So how, how did the sort of Germans fare when they came up against the, the French and then the, the British in particular um, against armour? Because obviously the Blitzkrieg tactic revolves around mechanised warfare. So how did how did the sort of Panzers and the German sort of army stand up to um, the British and, and French armour during the, the Battle of France and lead up to uh, the withdrawal from Dunkirk? So it's 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 quite well known that the German that German armour was very inferior to that of what the British and French were fielding at the time, um, in the way of firepower, armour, but. Generally, at this point in the war, British, but mainly the French, really, um, which, which is a shame because the French army was very, very powerful. It was one of the largest stunning armies in Europe during the interwar period and at that time as well. But its leadership and supply chain was very lacking, which is a big letdown to how they'd um, performed really during the Great War. Um, in the way of armour, the French had very, very good tanks, some of the best in the world. Well, some of the most powerful, I should say, and the British had very, very good armor as well in terms of, say, the cruiser tanks um, were very capable at that point, very, very capable of taking on anything to the Germ- anything the Germans had. Um, and then you had the infantry tanks, such as the Matildas. The Germans had, say, like Panzer 38Ts, Panzer 1s, Panzer 2s, very few Panzer 3s, and even then, very, very, very few um, Panzer 4s. And they were only armed with, say, short barrels, 70, uh, 75 mil, like almost like assault guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, but the thing was, the Germans knew how to use their armor. They, they'd worked on the tactics during the um, Spanish Civil War. They'd worked on the tactics during the invasion of Poland. And they knew how to use armor very, very effectively. They were able to outflank, outmaneuver, outperform, um, really, uh, the, especially the French in large tank battles. The French did have some, have some successes, don't get me wrong. But in the long run, with the speed and the... Uh, ability that they had and also they had radios um which meant they could coordinate their attacks they could coordinate with the infantry and also they could coordinate with the air with the luftwaffe so calling in that support say from the stukas and and other aircraft such as that to pin down or destroy the the enemy before they assaulted with the armor um so it was very very effective the uh, tactics they use or the blitzkrieg so to say they use within the battle of france um, you did have the uh, British counterattack at Arras, which put um, um, the force that was under command by Rommel under great strain and great, um, uh, basically, the terror that was almost um, when they managed to though fight to uh, beat off the uh, uh, British assault with um, the 88mm flat guns they had with them at the time, which they had used to some, some effect in Poland but then became very, very prevalent with uh, how effective they were at taking out armour within the Battle of France. So that was really like one of the main successes the British armour had. They were very, very close to cutting off the German attack at that point. And if they got through, probably would have put the whole German offensive, so it was the um, Manstein plan, um, it would have put that whole offensive, the whole plan into great jeopardy, really, at the time. So, um, and with the whole evacuation towards Dunkirk, um, British armour... Um, forces became smaller and smaller and smaller with the loss of tanks through breakdowns, through action, etc. And once that had to be abandoned, 
either they ran out of fuel and they had to be abandoned and um, disabled at some point. So, um, yeah, the German armor very much fared very, very well in the Battle of France. Not to say they didn't have heavy losses. The Germans lost a lot of troops in the invasion of, in the invasion of France um, and a lot of personnel due to action, wounded, captured or killed, really. Um, so, but they did manage to secure and defeat the British and French armies basically within like uh, five to six weeks or so. So it was a, in, in, uh, so yeah, it was a crazy feat of uh, of tactic. Yeah, because of course you mentioned about it was only a matter of weeks that managed, the Germans managed to defeat the, the sort of British and allied sort of allied forces in France. Uh, so just just with that in mind, obviously. Uh, we've got the withdrawal to Dunkirk, so we're talking sort of late May, early June. Um, the Germans held back, didn't they? So they they didn't put kind of um, you know fulfil that hammer blow towards the coast of wipe the, the British off, the, you know, sort of pulverise them off the beaches. They kind of almost mm-hmm. some would say allowed them to escape back to the sanctuary of uh, the United Kingdom. So with with that in mind, why why did the Germans just sort of drive forward and finish the British and French forces off that were trapped there? Um, what then led them to uh, make the decision to say, well, let's put some uh, an operation together to invade and subjugate the people of uh, you know mainland Britain? <clears throat> yeah, so the the whole um, situation around the stopping before assaulting uh, Dunkirk really is it's a, it's still contested. So there's not there's not a definitive answer. Um, some might say there is, but it's still up in the air if the, if. Um, Hitler wanted to be more lenient in the way of a peace deal or many, many other reasons to reserve his to reserve his tanks and just let the Luftwaffe go at it. So there's many different reasons that, but we won't get into that now. Um, but they, the Wehrmacht knew um, and the Luftwaffe knew to a certain point that they wanted to and needed really to at least bring Britain to the uh, negotiating table. They thought with the fall of France that Britain would um, capitulate or at least as I say, come to the um, come to the table for talks. Um, that wasn't forthcoming. Obviously, with um, basically the the same sort of day as the invasion of France, uh, Winston Churchill became prime minister. Um, Chamberlain had resigned, and now sitting at the head of government was a much more um, determined uh, leader um, for the uh, for the cabinet and for the country. So there was very much. A negligible chance, or practically, well, basically none, of um, Britain coming to the peace talks with Hitler, or even Mussolini at that point. Not long after the invasion of France, Italy joined the war as well. So that was another thing to consider with the Italian navy, which which was vast, um, which was um, basically the fifth largest in the fifth largest in the world at that point. Um, had very very strong battleships, very very fast as well, um, which were now challenging the Royal Navy within the Mediterranean. Um, So there's many things at that point. But at the same time, Churchill was a different leader than Chamberlain. He wasn't prepared to give up. Um, So then plans were made up, not properly officially at at the first. Um, So you had uh, Franz Holder, um, who was um, one of the uh, chief of staff within OKH, um, who put up a, a plan for an invasion between Ramsgate and Lyme Regis using firstly 13 divisions um rising to 39 and that was that was proposed but that was very very vast for what uh, the germans could really field really through it for their navy really so um 
there were other plans put forward. It would be later adapted later on. Um, Alfred Yodel basically described it as probably a, a river crossing on a broad front, which um, basically incensed the Kriegsmarine. Um, they thought they, the Luftwaffe, Hitler and the Wehrmacht were out of their minds because the they knew how outnumbered they were by the Royal Navy. Um, and yeah, and how the Luftwaffe wasn't able to commit a, a knockout blow at Dunkirk um, it was very optimistic to feel that they would be able to knock out the Royal Air Force in one go as well. That was the thing. You need to knock out, the, you need to at least push back the Royal Air Force to um, gain their superiority to at least allow a landing. Um, but the fact is, it's not so necessarily about um, the landing. It's it's how do you keep those troops and that supplied. So all these factors came to, um, to fruition. Um, and plans were made and barges were gathered and um, there were many things um, designed and created um, in in really necessity to for the invasion so um, you have like special weapons that were created so I think Steve will go into a little bit about that now so yeah the, the Germans had a few uh, sort of secret weapons up their sleeve which they uh, wanted to sort of uh, use during Operation Sea Line so they had the Pac-38 which was developed as a result of um, their experience in uh, the Battle of France. So it was specifically designed so it could uh, penetrate um, British tanks because uh, they had a little bit of trouble during the Battle of France with some of the British tanks, although there wasn't that many of them. Uh, they realised very quickly that their uh, Pac-36, which they um, had before the Pac-38, wasn't uh, up to the job of combating the British tanks. So um, some, of the, some of the other interesting um, sort of weapons they had, so they had these Stug-3 assault guns, which they plans to um, sort of land in the first wave or two. Uh, the flam panzers as well, which are flamethrower uh, panzers, as the name suggests. And also the Schwimm panzer, which is um, quite interesting because obviously we think of, you know, floating or swimming tanks and we associate them with, with Normandy and being a British invention and so forth. But the, the Schwimm panzer um, was, you know, a fair few years before that, but obviously it didn't come to uh, fruition and being used in uh, an assault uh, during up sea line, of course. Yeah, and it's the all these weapons were very much uh, ideas at the time, and they were very much rushed into um, into production, really. And it sort of um, shows a sort of unpreparedness, really, as well, of uh, of the Germans who plan invasion. They had very very few ships, um, practically no capital ships at this point. Like the, their Panzer ships had been sort of defeated by this point um, during the war. They had a couple of battle crews left and. Uh, Bismarck hadn't even been launched yet um, so getting the certain weapons ashore would be very very difficult considering that the main bulk of the invasion force would be carried in river barges um, which are, are not suited to anything more than a light swell so it's, um, it's very much a slapdash kind of effort um, Germany is seen as this ultimate juggernaut that was uh, um, able to sweep aside anything, and Britain was at, and Britain was at its mercy, really. But um, as you will come to see um, later on, uh, and in episode four, that will be very, very different. So, before we move on to the second uh, half of this podcast, we just have a quick message from our sponsor. Here at the Young Contemptibles podcast, we are very honoured and proud to be sponsored by Quartermaster Stores, a UK business specialising in bespoke leatherwork footwear and historical clothing 
for living historians. Whether you are an old hand or a complete beginner in the world of living history, there really is something for everyone. And what's even better is that listeners of this podcast are entitled to a 5% discount. Simply use the code QMCAST5, that's QMCAST5 at checkout when shopping on quartermaster-stores.com. Hi and welcome back to the Young Contemptors podcast. Thank you to our sponsor. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the um, Luftwaffe. So over to um, Steve. Yes, the numbers that the British believed the Luftwaffe had was uh, greatly exaggerated. So, uh, for instance, talking about bombers, the British believed that the Luftwaffe had at their sort of uh, disposal 2,550 bombers, where actually they only had 988. So that's, you know, less than less than half of the number they believed. And obviously the, the bombing campaign is where the Luftwaffe uh, put its kind of um, main sort of impetus uh, into sort of trying to break the morale of Britain uh, in those sort of months of 1940. Also, the, the British believed that there was 1,500 uh, fighter aircraft. The Luftwaffe only had 1,171. Uh, again, dive bombers, the British believed there's 500, only 311. And it's the same with, with coastal aircraft as well. So the British believed there was 400. Uh, however, the Luftwaffe only had 108. The Luftwaffe, however, did have assistance from the Italian uh, Air Force. So Mussolini did reach out to Hitler and say, you know, we can lend you some, some aircraft. We'd like to be involved in this sort of operation. Uh, Hitler initially rebuffed it and said, not a chance. Uh, but then there was sort of piecemeal um, sort of uh, Italian Air Force assistance uh, during the sort of lead up to when they believed uh, Op Sea Line was going to take place because they kind of um, were looking at it, it being held in, in September of 1940. Um, but that was kind of pushed back until um, sort of late September before it was, of course, eventually um, sort of cancelled. But more importantly, let's talk about the, the naval strength of each, uh, of each side. Over to you, Jack. So the naval aspect of the invasion is probably one of the most important parts of it really now as i explained earlier after the narvik campaign the kriegsmarine was basically half of its strength as it was when it started the war so and obviously after other actions as well in the south atlantic so the graf speed had been sunk in in quite early well the early part of the war in 1939 um it was around i think it was just post christmas really that it was sunk during the Battle of the River Plate. Um, the uh, Panzerschiff, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Uh, not It's not Deutschland, but it's some of the other ones, was sunk uh, when during the invasion of Na- uh, Norway um, by the Norwegians. And several destroyers um, were sunk during the Narvik campaign. And then you have cruisers which were sunk or damaged. And it was, it was a catastrophe, really, for the cruise marine. Um, in 1939-1940, the Germans basically had very few um, U-boats as well. They had been causing havoc, don't get me wrong. They had been causing havoc in the Atlantic, but they had very few submarines at that point, <clears throat> unlike what they would have later on in the war. And compare that to, say, what the Royal Navy had within the area. So what Germany could muster for the invasion was 10, well, in terms of destroyers, was 10 destroyers to protect the invasion fleet. And to protect the invasion fleet, you need a lot of ships. Now, 10 destroyers is not a lot. Between Sheerness and Harwich alone, 
which is basically the mouth of the um, Thames estuary, the Royal Navy had 30. Um, all in all, around the United, around the British Isles, the Royal Navy could call on 86 uh, destroyers, I think it is. Uh, yep, 86 destroyers. So I'm just checking my notes. Um, 86 destroyers. Uh, and in Scarpa Flow, they had the obviously the um, British Home Fleet, which consisted of um, eight capital ships, so battleships, etc., 11 cruisers and other such craft. So around the British Isles, again, you had um, several hundred um, armed patrol craft. You had um, minesweepers of all different types. And the, the cruise marine was so outnumbered. It was, the comparison is, is ridiculous. And the German plan was basically with the invasion where they were going to land, which was the planned um, invasion area was going to be going to be between uh, South Sea Bill and Folkestone and it was planned to land um, several divisions um, roughly from 67,000 uh, men up to about 138 after several days and, and they would lay thick belts of mines on each side of the invasion. Now with what the Royal Navy had to spare um, or say had to spare, had at its disposal I should say, would break through that within a very short time and cause havoc so the disparity was enormous now the germans hoped to use their air force the luftwaffe to their advantage that was their sort of trump card and this sort of thing but bear in mind during this period of the war the germans only had a handful of he 115 torpedo bombers and their stukas did not have the capable armament to penetrate a battleship deck armor now they might be able to do damage. Obviously, they'll be able to do damage to cruisers and destroyers, as like. But generally, Stukas at this point and their pilots weren't trained in taking out uh, ships at sea. Then usually um, um, used to uh, taking out uh, fixed fortifications or slow-moving troop transports or troop convoys, not fast-moving ships that can move at thirty knots and maneuver how they want to to avoid the bombs. And also be firing back at you. So it's a very, very different type of target. Obviously, later in the war, this would change, um, especially during the Mediterranean campaign. But at this point in the war, the, the Luftwaffe was very lacking in how it could tackle the, uh, the Royal Navy. Not to say they won't be able to cause casualties. Of course they will. Um, ships will be lost. And uh, from, say, like um, high-level bombing raids against, say, large concentrations of um, British shipping, etc., could be very effective. But all in terms, the Royal Navy would be prepared to throw everything and anything into the channel to prevent the Germans, not necessarily landing, but preventing them to resupply their troops. So the um, it was very much a one-sided thing in regards to the Royal Navy. So let me go back to Steve, and he will talk about the uh, ground forces. Yeah, just, just before we do, I think it's interesting to sort of pick up on the points. So the Royal Navy really was, you know, that sort of um, sort of oak wall, so to speak, you know, of, of around Britain. It was the safety and it had been for hundreds of years. Now, the Royal Navy were very, you know, sort of uh, acutely aware of the fact that the Germans didn't have much of a navy. So they, they end, when, when the French actually surrendered and, um, you know, their sort of name, rather remnants of their navy were hauled up in Merzal Kabir on uh, the uh, North African coast, the Royal Navy went in and issued them an ult ultimatum. And they did that because they, they were very fearful 
that the uh, German, well, that those French uh, naval ships would fall into German hands and they'd be able to use them against the Allied forces, most in particular uh, Britain itself. So uh, the Royal Navy went in, issued them the ultimatum, and the, the French uh, sailors basically said no. So the British went in and they blew a number of those ships up and, and stopped them from being um, used by anyone for that matter. So, um, you know, they were very clued up to it. And it's, it's definitely worth mentioning that, you know, it's not all about Britain being on the back foot because actually Britain was not on the, so much on the front foot, but they were uh, very much doing all they could to try and frustrate any German plans. Because at this point, you know, Britain was, was very much on its own. It was the only sort of, there are, say, superpower at that time that was in the war against uh, the Germans. So it was isolated on, on its own. Picking at the point of the RAF, of course, you've got numerous um, pilots and aircrew from other nations coming in, not just the Commonwealth, but obviously Eastern European nations in South Africa and so forth. So the real melting pot of all these nationalities coming into, um, you know, work against this sort of tyrannical country that was trying to take over the, uh, the whole of Europe in, in that sense. No, absolutely. Um, and it really is a massive disparity. Uh, you've got a huge amount of um, force able to be brought to bear against the Kriegsmarine and the Luftwaffe and what else you've got. Because it's not just the RAF, it's, uh, well, not just fighter command, I should say, really. It's bomber command as well. And then you've got coastal command. And then you've got the fleet air arm to add in it as well. There's a lot of um, assets that can be used. I think it's just at the time, though, You've got this sense of panic um, that has been ensued with the whole with the fall of France, and that was not thought to have ha- to be able to happen. And that's where this sort of sense of uh, we were at the mercy of the German juggernaut, really, at that period, which comes into the thing. So, Steve, um, what was the uh, sort of order of battle, really, of the the German and British forces, really? So, speaking specifically on the on the British forces, so. Probably picking up on what you said earlier, so the Germans in, in September with their revised plan, they looked at landing so 67,000 troops initially, rising to 138,000 troops. So sounds sounds like a lot of troops, doesn't it? But when you actually start doing a bit of number crunching, we look at the number of troops that were evacuated from uh, the beaches of Dunkirk and Braise June. So that's a total of 338,000. So that's a hell of a lot of troops. That's you know, 22 infantry divisions in total that's you know outnumbering far outnumbering the maximum number of troops that the the Germans were going to land you know initially also not to forget Operation Ariel as well and Operation Cycle which were uh, actually after Dunkirk and they brought an extra 215,000 troops back to the UK so you know you've got nearly half a million troops there and then when you start looking at the uh, LDV as they were or uh, lastly the uh, you know Home Guard well, that was, you know, going up to well over a million men in total at their height. Um, so you start to do a bit of number crunch. You think, well, actually, just on paper, the numbers are actually uh, pretty good in comparison between the, uh, the the two nations. But I think the sort of killer blow in terms of would, would the operation have gone ahead, it all centres, in my view, around the Navy. Because even if, you know, the, the Germans have got uh, air superiority, you know, for argument's sake, they're going to have to use just those those ten, um, you know, destroyers um, to sort of keep the whole channel locked down uh, to fight off this huge juggernaut, which is the, the Royal Navy, which has also got a Mediterranean fleet as well, which will come to the rescue uh, if needs be. Uh, and to keep those troops, so you land the Germans have landed the troops on uh, you know the southern uh, shores of, of England, God forbid, 
Um, they have to resupply them. You know, they can't just resupply by air all the time. It isn't going to work that way. They have to resupply. Um, you know, they, you can't drop a, a Panzer tank out the, uh, you know, <laughs> out of uh, you know Heinkel, for instance. So you'd have to bring you know fresh tanks onto the beaches. Uh, there's things like uh, you know petrol, etc., as well, oil, all these consumable pieces that an army needs, ammunition and so forth. You can't just rely on the air. So you're going to have to have control of those shipping lanes. And you you cast your eyes sort of forward to 1944 with Operation Overlord, and you think of the amount of planning that went into that, and the fact that yes, Britain did have. Uh, air superiority at that point in that area but also more importantly they had uh, you know supremacy of the high seas at that point along with uh, the the american navy so um we'll go into uh, in the by the next episode we'll go into the plans that um, britain put into place in anticipation of uh, the german invasion and we'll crunch yeah. a few more numbers and we'll, uh, we'll geek out over uh, bits of concrete. And what we'll do, I think you're also going to touch on the um, the kind of, you know, was it in the 1970s? I think there was uh, a bit of a play out, of, of a sort of uh, war battle of uh, Operation Sea Lion, if I'm right in saying something along those lines, was there? Yeah, so, yeah, during the 1970s, they did a, a large sort of war game at Sandhurst Military College um, where they played out what would happen if the Germans had invaded. And, um, yeah, the... Uh, the outcome is very, very not very, very interesting, um, and how it how it all came about. But to add to your bit earlier about so land forces, the way of like you know, the LDV or later the Home Guard and that etc. You also had all the troops that had been training in England from the start of the war. Um, you had a lot of TA units etc. As well, you had a whole Canadian division that had come over to the UK. Um, of course, two whole armored divisions have been um, saved. Yes, the British had lost a lot of equipment, like thousands and thousands of tons of equipment, rifles, machine guns, artillery, anti-tank guns, armor, vehicles, etc., etc. But by the time of the planned invasion, so obviously that's September, the invasion was supposed to take place on the 22nd of September, um, were, there was a lot of units within the United Kingdom, and a lot of preparations have been done by that point, which we will, again, as, as Steve has said, touch on in the next episode. Yeah, so uh, thanks for listening to uh, episode three. Blimey, they're uh, flying by. So, of course, we've been talking about Operation Sea Line. This is part one of our sort of in-depth look at Operation Sea Line. So join us next week when we'll be taking a look at the uh, the British response to the German uh, plans of Operation Sea Line. And uh, we look forward to uh, hosting you then. Mm-hmm.